0: the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. It's another episode from the back catalogue from the illustrious vaults of history hit. This one features one of the world's favorite historians, Bethany Hughes. You've seen her on TV. You've heard her on the podcasts, on the radios, on the live streams. She's a legend, but what you might not know is that she's a totally brilliant writer, a brilliant historian. Her history of Istanbul, sort of portrait, a biography of that essential city that sits at the crossroads of Europe and Asia, the Mediterranean world, the Black Sea, you name it. It is such a good book. She came on the podcast a couple of years ago to talk all about it. Please enjoy this conversation with her, a pioneering public historian, brilliant author. And if you want to listen to other back episodes of this podcast, they're only available only in one place, and that's at historyhit.tv. It's our subscription service, like a digital history channel. We've got TV shows going up all there all the time. We've got podcasts, thousands of podcasts, History Hit and all the sibling podcasts up there. It's just going great guns over there. I can't tell you. It's awesome. So thank you to all of you guys for subscribing. I mean, I'm going on some serious adventures over the next few weeks because of you and not just me, lots of other wonderful historians as well. We've got a big series with Eleanor Yanniger coming up all about the medieval world. Great stuff. So head over there, historyhit.tv. In the meantime, everybody, here is Bethany Hughes. Enjoy. Bethany Hughes, one of the world's greatest historians on one of the world's greatest cities, Istanbul. I mean, what an exciting project. How long has this been going for?
2: Uh, ten years. So I first started to research it ten years ago, but I first went to the city 30 years ago, and that's, that's, I suppose, when the idea came into my mind. And is it the greatest city on Earth? It's got to be one of them. I, I think it has to be the most important city really? on Earth, arguably, because when I was writing the book, I thought, well, I'm not just writing a, a story of the city, I'm writing a story of the world, and then found out as I was writing it, I was writing a history of the world which sort of backed up my instincts on it. I think it's really interesting Istanbul because we always talk about it as the bridge between east and west, but it's as importantly a bridge between north and south because if you think you've got Russia at the top mm. of the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles and that's how you get down to the to the south southern continents and to Africa um, and to the near east. So from its very beginning As a prehistoric settlement, it's been this pivotal place where people have come to express themselves, to establish themselves, to try to work out what it is to be human. And I think what's really critical about it is that both physically And psychologically, it's always been this huge city. So it's actually physically controlled trade. It's started wars. It's ended wars. It's where refugees are flooded to over the last 2,000 years. But psychologically as well, it's always been this place that's described as a diamond between two sapphires or the world's desire or in Arabic it's called the threshold. So it's as much an idea as it is a place.
1: Now you're saying that, of course, I'm thinking about Harold Hardrada coming down to those rivers and, and from northern... So you're absolutely right. But was it even before Constantine and, and the Romans go and give it a big gold face, was it a really important settlement way back...
2: Yeah, well, you see, this is really interesting. This is what I've tried to do with the research is that it felt to me like it was a kind of perfect time, because there's lots of new stuff coming out. There's lots of new stuff coming out from the archives, actually, for the later histories, because of course, the Ottomans controlled uh, what's, what were Soviet countries. So as soon as those were liberated, we found all these incredible archives of what was going on under Ottoman domination. But more than that, very helpfully uh, for us, because there's been so much infrastructure work in the city, and there are now two tunnels underneath the Bosphorus Ah, there's a whole new metro system so the most incredible archaeology is coming up out of the earth as well so I've had the absolute privilege to go and stand in these sites and it is. I mean, I get excited by anything. Basically. I get incited by a belt buckle. But the, but the material that's coming out of these digs, is just incredible. So we have, for instance, um, the world's oldest wooden coffin, which is 8000 years old, which has got this lovely young girl who's kind of curled up in it. Beautiful coffin made of lattice wood that's just been kind of pretty miraculously preserved in the prosperous mud. And we've got 2,000 footprints of the Neolithic inhabitants of the city. So whereas, exactly as you said, it's always been this sort of, you know, kind of, I was going to say slightly lazy, but it's sort of been this thing, oh, it was nothing. It was just like a little fishing village and then nothing happened until Constantine came and made it the great Constantinople. That's just nonsense. Because if you look at it topographically, of course, it is the perfect place to live and to realise your ambitions. So you get these Stone Age inhabitants coming and setting up home there. So we have, as we said, their coffins, their footprints, the little oars that they used for the canoes to kind of come in and out of the settlement. So it's always been this critically important place. I think what happened to it in its very early history, its early Greek history, it was almost too strategic for its own good. And so everybody basically wanted to have a part of it. And so it was invaded, it was besieged. You know, the Persians tried to get it. There's this fantastic Spartan called Pausanias, who's like the ultimate Greek hero. You know, people will have heard of him. You know, he he did all the right things in a sort of good Greek Spartan way. And then he goes a bit mad when he takes over Byzantium. It just kind of goes to his head and he kind of falls in love um, with this place. And he becomes like a little mini tyrant. And we think he probably built the first walls of the city and he wants to make it this kind of utopia where he can live. So in a way, that's, I think, why it didn't have its own empire early, because everybody was trying to make it their own. So it was just kind of shoved around like this kind of urbane hot potato between the powers of the day.
1: And yet it's absorbed into Macedonian empires and the Roman Empire. And then... It must have had a reputation because Constantine didn't just pick it out at random to make his second capital, did he? I mean, he right. must have. it must have been a very special place.
2: It, it was. And I think it's it started to become very special to the Romans, particularly in the late Roman Empire, when they kind of realised the East really matters. Mm-hmm. So the more they tangle with the East, and obviously this is how you can control the East and how you can reach out to it. So um, the Emperor Septimius Severus builds this thing called the Milion. And the million is basically the mother of all mile markers. And it's still there in the city. It's really neglected. If you go to, right to the centre of Istanbul today, um, where the Hippodrome and the Hagia Sophia and just sort of quite close to the Blue Mosque is. And it's this sort of denuded column that's been nibbled away and stray cats go and sort of shelter underneath it. And it's kind of got sweet wrappers around it. But this was almost... The heart of late the late Roman world, really, because from the Milion, all distances in the Roman Empire were measured. So it was—it's incredible. You know, it was like the kind of ground zero, really. And that's for Rome. before
1: Constantine.
2: It's before Constantine. So it clearly, it
1: was seen as the epicenter of the empire. It's fascinating. I know where I think, East met West.
2: I think I, I think that's exactly right. And I think you know the historians who've gone before us have just slightly done it a disservice mm. because that's a bit muddling. We sort of don't want. it. No, we, well, people have always kind of quite liked these, you know, historical lines in the sand. And so it doesn't quite fit that, that Rome is moving east that early. So exactly that. It was really, really important to the Romans It was connected by the Ignatian Way, which is the most beautiful Roman road that runs from modern-day Albania right to the heart of modern-day Istanbul. It still exists in part. It's still called the Ignatian Way in some of those areas. In some places, it's very, very broken and you have to kind of you know, find it, find the paving stones underneath shrubs and in woodland, and actually, just just an aside, it's really interesting because it's the Romans do what they do brilliantly is build the straightest, easiest route from one point to another, and so it re- basically takes you from east to west. And so, lots of refugees now are using it; they don't no. know it, they're using it, they're walking oh, along the goodness. old Roman road to to come west. So it's got this this new life now. This is
1: an odd question, maybe, but if you wanted to go Rome. Then you go to the eastern side of the Italian peninsula and then across and then on the Ignatian way to uh Constantinople. How long would that journey take you? What are we talking?
2: Oh I can tell you exactly because oh. I've walked it. Oh you're, oh, you're such a hero. <laughs> I know. It is three days. Basically. So three days from over the coast, three, are they? three days was pretty gentle. You don't have to really kind of, you know, um hmm. hack it. It's quite quite a gentle bit of a walk, bit of a ride. I cheated, I got lifts in well, a sure. few Albanian totally carts totally. and things. <laughs> but, so yeah, three days.
1: We think of ourselves as very mobile nowadays, but actually if you wanted to, you could be from Rome to Constantinople, if you were travelling imperial messages, you'd be there really fast, a matter of days.
2: A matter of days, exactly, and all perfectly measured in that Roman way, you know, you've got your mile markers all the way along, you've got lovely baths and sort of rest houses to kind of, you know, spruce you up a bit. There's a little section of it actually that's just been excavated although it's not officially the the Ignatian Way because it's a little kind of, it goes right through the centre of town. But if you go to Thessaloniki in northern Greece now and you go 30 feet down underneath there, basically their high street, and you can see the old Roman road, these beautiful, so so, very cool, um, white marble slabs, and next to the road, you've got the bits where the little kids were obviously waiting while their parents were shopping and they were really bored. So they've scratched in kind of the equivalents of noughts oh, wow. and crosses in and the so stones and stuff. So it's all, it's anyway, so it basically it was important, but all, we're very lucky because all this new material is now coming out of the earth to show us what's happening.
1: And so Constantine comes along, there's yes. lots of civil wars, but Constantine wins those civil wars and reunites the Roman Empire and then builds this mighty Was it designed to be a second capital, a first city, just a big city to celebrate himself? What was the idea behind Constantinople?
2: Well, I think, you know, this is debated. I think that what happens is that you'll know there's this Big question. Did he convert to Christianity at the Battle of Milvian Bridge? Did he see this extraordinary cross in the sky sky on his way there? And then he encouraged his soldiers to have a cross on their shields and things. Something, there is something that happens. There is a psychological shift that happens in Constantine around that time. We don't know whether that's a full conversion, because he's still, of course worshipping Sol and Victus and keeping pagan gods on side, you know, naturally, as you did. But you just get the sense that there's something that personally really matters to him. And it could be he was very close to his mother, Helena. Yes, she was a keen Christian. keen Christian. So, you know, maybe it's her (laughs) mum just telling Mm -hmm. him what to do, basically. Originally... He actually goes and scopes Troy. He says, uh-huh. he says, oh, maybe I'll put my new capital at Troy because that's where the great Trojan heroes, you know, uh, our ancestors, uh, Aeneas, etc., went. And then he decides against that. It's actually would be a rubbish place for a capital city, Troy, because so, the currents are so awkward around there. And um, so quite sensibly, he says that he was guided then by the hand of God uh, to go to uh, what was Byzantium, and that there are all these accounts that he walked through the city with Christ in front of him, and he marked out the new city with his lance and spear. I think actually why he chose it is because that's just opposite, just across the Bosporus at Chrysopolis, that's where he has his massive battle against his arch rival. And so in a way, it's his place of victory. And it's much better to be on the European side, you've got much more options open to you if you found your city. So Byzantium is basically bang opposite Chrysopolis. And I think that's probably why he turns it into Constantinople.
1: And was it intended to move imperial power away from Rome? Was Rome by this stage seen as um anachronistic or sort of connected with interne sign infighting and the problems of the civil wars of the previous decades. And was this a sort of a fresh start for the Empire?
2: I think it is, yeah, I think it is. I think they realize that, well, if you're going to control the East, you've got to be a bit closer okay. to it. Um, and also, you've got this incredible potential going directly east. So if you go across on the Bosphorus, head through what they called the Asia Minor, you know, what for us is Anatolia, you've got these rich, fertile, wonderful, strange lands all the way to the Caucasus. And actually, they've never completely got to grips with those. So he's a very ambitious man, Constantine. So I think absolutely, as you say, he could sit in that capital city of Constantinople, which he made very beautiful, which he filled with new men. It was a real sort of, it's like the kind of Milton Keynes of its day. You know, it's a real sort of fresh start <laughs> idea. A wonderful
3: comparison. And,
2: and, you know, look yeah. out over those channels, those waterways where continents are cheeked by jowl. And I think he really thought I can, you know, I have the one true God on my side and I can now control the world.
1: And I know Hadrian gets in trouble earlier for embracing sort of Greek ideas and being insufficiently Roman perhaps. Does Constantinople quite quickly, is it a very Roman city? Is it a very pan-imperial city? Is it sort of quite a Greek city? What's its character? How does it change the empire?
2: Yes, I think it is. Uh, it Well, it is very Roman in that they have all, basically, Rome doesn't ever fall. It just moves 854 miles east. So they have a senate, uh, they have uh, chariot racing, you know, they have a praetorium, they have all the things that you'd expect to have um, in Rome. It's kind of a version of Rome. But what's exciting about it? And why it's so exciting to study, and I'm sure why it was so exciting to live in all that time ago, is it has this kind of Eastern base note pulsing through it. So they still worship Eastern gods there. There's this brilliant um, goddess called Kybele, who's the the great mother goddess. She's worshipped as the Magna Mater um, in Rome itself. And I mean, she's a remarkable creature. She comes basically from Anatolia. She's supposed to, you can still go to her, her shrines, and she's supposed to guard the God, the sort of root between the two worlds, between life and death. And so she's super powerful. She's a bit odd. So her priests, yeah, she 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 encourages, we're told, she encourages her priests to castrate themselves. So they do this, um, they do this very unroman thing of castrating themselves and wearing makeup and growing their hair long and you know, it's all quite unroman yeah. that. And Kibyleh is massive in Constantinople. So even in Christian Constantinople, Kibyleh is everywhere. So her shrines are everywhere. And Constantine sort of takes on this, this Greek goddess, Tyche and it sort of moulds her with Kibyleh. So I think it was just a cool place to be.
1: Hi, everyone. You're listening to Dance Knows History. I'm talking to Bethany Hughes about Istanbul. More after
3: this. Wherever you get your podcasts,
0: one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can.
3: I mean, it's hard to think of any comparison.
1: Imperial, must be Peter the Great, probably does it, but at that stage, Russia was much smaller and less important. I mean, you'd never imagine the capital of the French Empire, the British Empire moving around in this way I mean this is a remarkable move for and successful to move an imperial capital some people have tried it's never really worked
2: no that's right and they did try again Yeah, you're right you know the Greeks kind of tried it as well as, or should we be in Byzantium? or should we move elsewhere and the later Byzantines at some point sort of thing, well, you know should we go to Sicily but you're right it doesn't work but they say very firmly this is the new Rome this is the second Rome this is where it's all all at and your point is is very cogent and pertinent that I think what they get is you've I keep on talking about the east but you've also opened up the access Mm. of of the Vikings coming down those those rivers and so what are called the Rus early, you know, um, give, that give their name to Russia, they become very important in the story of the city very quickly. I mean, they try to besiege it, you know, as, as the Vikings do. They come and do a bit of, um, they don't they don't get in, so they don't do their raping and pillaging, but they, they they have a go. But then they sort of fall in love with the place a bit later. Um, and we've just discovered in um, lovely, the Hagia Sophia, that was the church and then the mosque and is now a museum, um, we've known for ages about these runes, these Viking runes that've been carved into the marble balustrade there, but um, we've now discovered that somebody's just gone and done these fantastic little with their sort of probably with their brooch pin, done little graffiti of Viking ships with mm. the kind of dragon prows and things, so that so they would. You know, the Vikings definitely were were here. And at the point where um, the later Byzantines kind of embrace the Vikings a bit, they allow them... They got quite worried about them because they never know quite when they're going to turn nasty and try to besiege again. But they have this fantastic arrangement where they give them... If they come in through a certain gate and only 50 of them at a time, they get given free bed and breakfast in Constantinople. So the Vikings loved it. They used to come and have these kind of little B&B breaks in Istanbul. (laughs) Mini
1: breaks, like we do. So... um, and what's interesting about Byzantium as well, or you know, Constantinople, is it does the job of, which Constantine probably never envisaged particularly, but when the the barbarians are at the gate, it turns out that it's a brilliant military defensive position as well. And actually yes. it's the Western Empire that falls partly, because Byzantium, uh, Constantinople, does block that route of those central European tribes to the east, doesn't it?
2: I think, I think you're right. Sort of, kind of Rome can fall, because you've got this new second Rome, which is basically impregnable so you've got the city walls right to the edge of the sea so the sea walls which so many people try I mean you know the Arabs try 13 times to, to get the in goth. and, they're, and they're, yeah everyone and they're just beating back and beating back um so they so it absolutely is the most incredible uh, military and strategic force and even when it's besieged they've worked out all these very clever little ways through posterns that they can get supplies in and there are all these fantastic stories of women braiding their hair and you know making ropes out of their hair and casting and hauling up supplies in the dead of night and stuff so they've sort of got it they've got it sorted as a besieged city um right from the their, it's greek history Byzantine people who live in Byzantium write about how to deal with a siege. So they've got this sort of, they're the kind of siege experts in the in the globe. And that's, that's how they always manage to survive them. And also just incidentally, that's why they're so obsessed with the story of Troy and Helen of, Helen of Troy, because they sort of think like Troy, they're the ultimate city to try to besiege, but they win out, they don't fall.
1: It's so amazing, isn't it? That the amount of times, as you say, the enemy sweep right up to the gates. And it looks like, the Roman Empire's doomed, the East Roman whatever you want to call it. And then the enemy could disappear and they emerge again and, and take back so much of that hinterland. I mean, it is just the ultimate fortress at that point. Strategically, that's what fortress is supposed to do.
2: Yeah, exactly. And its I, I tell you what I'm very interested by as well is that right from very early, so from the 300s, st- consistently through the story of the city, right up to the Second World War, it's both a fortress city, but also it has this reputation as a place that will take in refugees which is really really interesting to me so when you've got all these this Barbarian difficulty roundabout. You get floods of refugees who are welcomed into the city, and they recognise that these are people who are going to then do their darndest to live well and to live strong within the city. They sort of see that it's a good—it's a good idea well, to I, help. I them suppose, as
1: you say, it's a city of immigrants, isn't it? A city of people. Romans have been brought, and and provincials from their provinces. So presumably, the city is quite relaxed about the idea of absorbing people. And and yeah,
2: re- yeah, not relaxed. I probably yeah, wouldn't use that one. I think they were quite. I think that you were frisked pretty yeah, you know, yeah, severely yeah, before you went in, and kind of checked out. And and there's all kinds of things. Again, once you're in, you have to prove that you've got enough supplies to survive a siege. But but you're right. They're they're open-minded. They they recognise that you get strength from difference. I think that's I think that's a really interesting characteristic. Of a system. good lesson
1: for us to learn. Um, so so the fifth century A.D. The western provinces fall away from the Roman Empire. Gaul, Britain, Spain, parts of North Africa and Italy itself. Mm. And I've always been confused. The Roman Empire, though, still goes on. And do the people of Constantinople call themselves Romans, believe themselves, even though Rome is now run by the Visigoths and is is outside the Roman Empire?
2: Yeah, they absolutely call themselves Romans. And if you're a Greek who lived in um, Istanbul, Constantinople, you still call yourself Romaiar. You still call yourself a Roman. We think that's probably where gypsies get the name Romani from because there were so many in the city. So there were these Roma people yep. people from rome who then travel travel west so yeah they 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 they're 100% i think again you know we're just brought up with this idea that rome fell and it just didn't it moved east and they were as proudly roman as they as they were anything and they um you know they kind of dress as the the emperor the emperor and the empress they dress as romans but you know they're fascinating because they've got this kind of this christian For a thousand years of their history, they've got this very, very strong Christian centre. And it does, I think it does make them think slightly differently. So if you look at some of the reforms that they passed, for instance, the two, they have to be my two favourite characters, probably from the Byzantine period of Justinian, and, of course, the great Emperor Justinian and his amazing amazing wife. wife the greatest social climb in history yeah i would say the greatest and most successful of yeah. all power to her so of course <laughs>
1: so, so she goes what from it's circus performers kids or, or... So,
2: yeah, she's yeah Her her father's a bear tamer yeah and trainer and because they have the chariot racing right in the centre of the city you always have these kind of entertainments in between Mm. and they're ferociously fought between the reds the blues the whites and the greens these uh kind of sporting factions teams in the city um so you have a lot of entertainers her father was a did performing bears and she was from very young she was an erotic dancer yes so uh we're told that so young theodora's uh, speciality was to reenact the story of leader and the swan which i'm sure everybody who's listening will mm. know so exactly so zeus in the form of a swan f- flew down was so enraptured with the sight of queen leader of sparta who was the mother of helen of troy so naturally perfectly beautiful he had to turn himself into a swan and go down and have her and uh, Theodora used to reenact this story and she used a goose and a trail of wheat up to some oh. people said into her body oh I'll just leave you with that thought that so that's that was her her uh, trick and and those who wrote about her rather critically also said that she was an expert in anal pleasure really? so this is Theodora
1: and then she, but then she becomes Empress of the Roman Empire.
2: The most powerful woman in the world. One of the most powerful women the world has ever known. So exactly that. So she. So Sorry. she's a sort of, you know, she's an outcast and she gets tossed around. She has to travel through Northern Africa and Egypt and Alexandria. She ends up with a consul, a consort of a consul. She ends up being a spy and she's obviously super 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 smart and word gets out to Justinian the emperor well he's actually not emperor at this point but you know he's 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 just about to become emperor because his uncle is failing basically that she's this amazing creature so they engineer a meeting he falls madly in love with her he changes the laws so that an emperor can marry an actress and uh, they are married and they are in love. You know, people talk about how sort of how embarrassing it is because they kiss in public the whole time and, you know, they're clearly passionate about each other. And they it's almost like they're catnip to one another. They seem to kind of inspire one another to, to make all these really radical changes to how society works. So Justinian is famous for his law code. And if you look at a lot of the laws that are passed at this time, I mean, there's no doubt that they're being stimulated by conversations with Theodora. So all sorts of things. So Theodora sets up a safe house for prostitutes. Uh, they say that men can't get into debt unless they have the written permission of their wives. What, how brilliant is that? Oh, brilliant. In AD. I mean, it's so cool. And, uh, oh, you know, all sorts of things. The penalties for rape increase. They try to stop sex slavery. Uh, they try to stop Pimping, You know, they say legislate against all of these things. So it becomes, although there are problems with Justinian's law code, he's very anti uh, any kind of homosexuality, he's very anti-Jews. But actually, for some sections of society, there is real, genuine social justice for the first time really legally enacted.
1: So much talk about in the long history of this incredible (laughs) city. But I think, can we just quickly move on to the final terminal event of Constantinople, the siege, the conquest by Islam. One of the great stories of history. Yes. um, An epic, I'm sure, in your book is incredibly beautifully written about. Um, It falls. What happened when it fell? Is it complete year zero? Everyone wiped out? Is there continuity? Is there change? And do these scholars and ideas disappear off to Western Europe and start the Reformation? What what is the impact of of, uh, of Constantinople changing to become Istanbul?
2: Well, it is huge. So that de- fourteen fifty three May fourteen fifty three is a massive date in history. By this time, the city of Constantinople itself has become pretty denuded. So it's really kind of thirteen little, almost like quasi villages. They haven't really got territory. Okay. It's very broken down and and derelict. You know, so the palaces are falling down there are only 5,000 maybe 7,000 soldiers there to defend it so the the Byzantines absolutely have their backs up against the the walls so they don't really have any chance against um, Mehmet II's great conquering forces Uh, but they arrive and what's very interesting for me yes there is massive change there is massive change this suddenly becomes Allah's city and again it's as important a religious conquest as it is a temporal one because um, in the Quran it was said that they, people had to conquer Constantinople. So it was this kind of religious duty to do so. And yes, of course, the churches get converted to mosques and the world changes in some way. But... What's really interesting is if you look actually on the ground at what happens, there's a brilliant um, document, which is here in London in the British Library, which is a concession to the merchants of Galata, so the, the Italian merchants who live just on the other side of the Golden Horn. And this was written three days after the conquest. Now, I've seen the document. It's written in Greek. It's a perfect fair copy. There's just one correction. So basically, they'd sorted out this regime change in very precise detail before they went in. So although we think of it as this kind of extraordinary clash of civilizations and this unexpected fight to the death, everybody knew what was happening. You know, the two, the Byzantine Emperor and the Ottoman uh, leaders had been in contact before then. So it was, in a way, strangely... Violent in some ways, but it was, it was, transition. it was quite a gentle transition. So anyway, so the, you, you've got this, these new, new rulers, and they also, what they do very consciously, very quickly is invite back in all those who'd fled from the city before. So they say, we want to make this a city of mixed fruit, is this lovely phrase. And so you get this multi-ethnic, multi-religious society starting in Istanbul really quickly within a couple of generations of that conquest of 1453. So, so it ashes
1: a new period of dynamism. It, uh,
2: without a doubt. And again, a fairly cosmopolitan living.
1: So this idea that we were taught in schools that that sort of ushered in a flood of scholarship and classical learning into western europe and started the renaissance <laughs> that isn't necessarily the case.
2: Well, it's sort of that sort of happens because um you're right in that the documents physically go west and suddenly it becomes very cool to learn greek again and people want to sort of study study the stuff and you physically get some people fleeing. So I think that is true that the renaissance is or Constantinople's loss was the Renaissance's gain, definitely. But I think what we've got to do is mind shift a bit and stop thinking that the Renaissance then just goes and happens in the West. Istanbul is a Renaissance city itself. So um, Mehmet and the subsequent sultans, they also preserve and commission huge amounts of research into greek documents and plays and they read at the alexander you know romances and uh he has a library of 120,000 volumes with lots of greek works inside it so it's istanbul itself is a renaissance city and by 1520 You know, it's double the size of London. They even get Leonardo da Vinci um, hears that they want to build a new bridge. And so he writes to the Sultan, and said, oh, look, I've got this fantastic idea for a bridge over the Golden Horn. And we've got his his sketches and his scheme for that. So it becomes really the kind of that's in a way the, the sexy, cool place. And again, to go and try to be a Renaissance man.
1: Amazing. Well, listen, I've already taken up 45 minutes of your time. I'm have to let you go. We haven't even done the last 500 years. There's so much more to do. I mean, there's the whole amazing issue of the Ottoman Empire and the ninth century Britain and Russia and everyone fighting over it. And then, of course, the tragedy of the German cruiser arriving in Istanbul, forcing the Ottoman Empire to declare war on Britain and France, and the whole redrawing of the Middle East that resulted. So, I mean, you're right. The city's fingerprints are at the heart of everything, aren't
2: they? They are. They are.
1: Um, But congratulations on the book. Huge achievement. And why are we releasing this podcast today?
2: Well, because today, 500 years ago, Istanbul became the centre of the first Ottoman caliphate, which was the longest running caliphate in Europe.
1: I mean, that is a huge anniversary Claxon, 500 years. Uh, and so thank you very much. Best of luck with the book. It's called?
2: It's called Istanbul, A Tale of Three Cities.
1: And uh, I'm sure you all know this, but Bethany Hughes is on Twitter. What are you on Twitter? You're
2: At Bethany Hughes. Bethany Hughes,
1: I think. I think. Uh, and obviously all over the telly stuff as well. So make sure you follow her there and uh, keep up to speed what's going on. I hope there'll be some television that comes out of this book because it deserves it. Wonderful. I hope so.
3: I feel
0: we have the hand of history on our shoulder. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were
1: gone and finished. Hi everyone, thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms, but anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favour, head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us, and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well.